Our scripture for today, which will help frame Mark's sermon, will be from Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat down. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake, uh, spake to Ruth earlier came by, unto whom he said, Oh, such a one, turn aside and sit down here. And he sat. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And they did so. And he said unto the kinsman again, Naomi, that is, come again out of the country of Moab, sells a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to tell you, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides you, and I am after you. And the uh, kinsman replied, I will redeem it. Boaz then said to him, What day you buy the field of the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it of the hand of Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman replied, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own, uh, mar my own inheritance. Redeem, your right, redeem my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. So to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was considered a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people there, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Shilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Melon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people that were at the gate and the elders responded, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is coming to your house like Rachel and like Leah which too did build the house of Israel. And do yourself worthy in Ephrathat, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh's, whom Tamar bear unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman, Ruth. Thank you, Joseph. Good morning. It was excellent to walk into the church this morning and hear that prelude being rehearsed. Did you like the prelude this morning with Sandy and, and uh, Donna? That was excellent. Thank you for that. And it's good to hear you all singing, too. Good to hear that. Well, for those of you who are counting, this is message number five from the book of Ruth. Quick now, how many chapters are in the book of Ruth? Put your fingers up. Four. Uh-oh. Something's out of balance. Five messages on a thin little book with only four chapters, and Joseph didn't read to the end. As far as I know, the record for most messages on a single book is held by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
He was an Englishman who was a very excellent Bible teacher, scholar, and writer. He preached a series in his church on the book of Romans. Romans has 16 chapters. His series on Romans lasted three and a half years. I promise we are not going there. But we will spend a couple more Sabbaths together in this little book. And as you know, this is the excellent book that I have based this series on. The one on the left, Finding God in the Margins by Carolyn Custis James. Please buy yourself a copy if you haven't done so already. And if you want to be doubly blessed, get the one on the right, the, book, the Gospel of Ruth. They're both some of the finest books I have read in the last couple of years. Now, I've got to admit to you that over the last six weeks or so, the book of Ruth is fast becoming one of my Old Testament favorites, right up there with Daniel, Genesis, Isaiah, and Ecclesiastes. I've been reading and rereading this book and thinking about it and even dreaming about it, believe it or not, and attempting to distill its, its central message down into a, a single sentence. I mean, think about that for a moment. If you were to summarize the book of Ruth in a single sentence, what would it be? How would you do that? As of this morning, if I were to do that, it would have to be something like this. God works in wonderful ways when his people choose to live by the principles of his kingdom when they choose to do hesed, and you remember that term, right? We must not forget the first half of the very first verse of the book, in the days when the judges ruled. This is the context that we've got to bring with us into chapter 2 and into chapter 3 and into chapter 4. The days when the judges ruled was a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, which is exactly how most people live today. No big truth with a capital T, just everybody living by whatever little truth seems to benefit them. People looking out for their own interests first. But right there, in that fallen culture, there were three people who decided they would live by higher principles, who chose to make costly sacrifices in order to benefit the other. They were Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. As Carolyn James says, living by Hesed, these three were ruling and subduing the small portion of the earth that God entrusted to their, to their stewardship. And unknown to them, God was at work through their faithfulness to rescue and save the whole world. And that's where we'll end up. God works in wonderful ways when his people choose to live lives of faithfulness, to honor him, to keep in step with the spirit instead of just maintaining compliance with the letter. It's interesting to me that neither Ruth nor Boaz is ever mentioned again in the whole rest of Scripture, not once, except in two short references, almost in passing, in Matthew's and Luke's genealogies. They were not giants of faith, rather just common, ordinary people living lives of uncommon faithfulness in a corrupt culture. But God worked wonderfully. And we're just ordinary people, too. 
But if the book of Ruth teaches us anything, it's that if we will live faithfully, if we will choose the way of the kingdom, if we will spend ourselves in service of good, God will be at work to save the world, though we may never be aware of it. We may never suspect it. That's the lesson of Ruth that just keeps coming back to me over and over again. And the reason that we choose faithfulness is because we have discovered that his kingdom, though seemingly invisible, is all around us. It's very close and it's very real. How many of you remember seeing a movie called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Anybody see that movie? It was about 2006 or so, I think. Yeah, a few of you. Um, do you remember the scene when Lucy first sees Narnia? I mean, the movie was based on a book by C.S. Lewis about four children who discover an ordinary old wardrobe to be the gateway into a magical world called Narnia. Narnia, of course, being the visible manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. And the very best scene of the whole film happens right near the beginning. Little Lucy is only eight years old and cute as a button when she stumbles out of the back of the wardrobe for the first time and discovers Narnia. And the look she has, that she stands in this, this awestruck wonder gazing around her. And the look she has on her face at that moment is worth the whole price of the movie. If you see nothing else about the movie, that look does it. In fact, the director of the film was so intent on capturing an authentic look of delighted amazement that he wouldn't allow Georgie Henley, who played Lucy, to so much as catch a glimpse of the elaborately constructed set. She was blindfolded until she came out of the wardrobe with the cameras rolling, and her sense of total wonderment is priceless. It's the moment she discovers Narnia is real, and it changes her forever. Now, in the spiritual sense, there's a term the Bible uses for this kind of moment. It's the term awakening. Awakening is a moment that something about God or the kingdom of heaven suddenly becomes very, very real. I mean, we may know about God, we may know a lot about his kingdom, and yet be totally oblivious. And the Bible calls it being asleep. But then something happens. It may be quite ordinary, but God awakens us, if only for a moment. But in a moment, the kingdom of God becomes intensely real and very close. And there's a word that our culture is using right now for this. Uh, it's to be woke. You know, you know what that means, right? You get that. If you are woke, then you have become suddenly aware of and enlightened about some social justice issue. I mean, you see the issue in a whole new light. You get a whole new way of thinking. And when you're woke, it changes your behavior. Well, awakening is, being, is like being woke to God. It's like being woke to his kingdom and his way of doing life. The book of Ruth has these wonderful moments sprinkled in it of awakening in which the larger sense of God's kingdom becomes very real. His goodness and his calling, they become palpable almost. 
Ruth brings home two weeks' worth of grain after her first day of gleaning and reports that she has been at work in a field belonging to a guy named Boaz. Naomi has an awakening moment. Suddenly, God's goodness to her, which she thought she had lost, she thought had disappeared, becomes very real and tangible, and her life is changed. In the barley field, Boaz uh, Ruth challenges Boaz to move beyond the letter of the gleaning law to its spirit. And Boaz has an awakening moment. A moment. Uh, that, that intent behind God's law becomes very beautiful to him and very tangible. His life is changed. And there's another one of those moments on the threshing floor. And we talked about that two weeks ago when Boaz realizes that Ruth has combined the spirit of two Mosaic laws of redemption, laws that are not even relevant to him according to the letter, but she has combined the spirit of them in order to rescue Elimelech's dying family. He is awestruck, and as a result, he chooses to join Ruth in her mission. Before chapter 4 is finished, there will be another awakening moment when the narrator pulls back the curtain and reveals what God has been doing all along. But we're getting a little bit ahead of the story this morning. This morning we've come to chapter 4, and all the plot elements are coming together now. Maybe you're thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I see where this is going. I know where this is going to wind up. But our storyteller still has a good surprise or two tucked up his sleeve and, and waiting for us before we get to the finish line. Before we join, join Boaz in the city gates, let's remember where we left off two weeks ago. You do remember, I hope, that there were two res risky rescue missions that were launched in chapter 3, otherwise known as the steamy chapter. First, Naomi initiates a plan to rescue her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She's thinking ahead to the time when she will die, and Ruth will be left alone for many years, scratching out a meager living on the margins of society, a destitute widow in a foreign land. So the widow Naomi will now act the part of another widow that Jesus talked about a thousand years later in Matthew chapter 12, a devout widow who puts in her last two coins to the offering plate. And Jesus said she put in all she had. Naomi will put in everything she has. She will give up Ruth so that Ruth might have a better future. It's an act of hesed, a gospel moment. She devises a risky plan to propose marriage to the man she believes is most likely to accept, not because he's legally obligated, because he's not, but because he has demonstrated himself to be a good man and generous. She appeals to his mercy by sending Ruth to the threshing floor where Boaz will be sleeping to make a marriage proposal. If her plan works, Naomi will die poor, but she will die at peace, having done what she could. But Ruth, you remember, hadn't forgotten for a moment her radical vow of fidelity to Naomi. And in her mind, Naomi's plan was flawed from the start. Why? Because it simply wasn't possible for Ruth to embrace a course of action that put her own happiness ahead of Naomi's. So she launched a rescue mission of her own that night. You remember who she set out to rescue? Who was it? 
It was Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, whose family line was about to die out. Ruth saw in Naomi's plan a window of opportunity to do more for her mother-in-law than anyone had to write to ask or even to dream about. And she subordinates her own happiness to the family duty of providing Naomi an heir. She followed Naomi's instructions to the letter until she came to the part where she was supposed to allow Boaz to have the lead. And then, in a very gutsy move in which she risked everything, she took the lead, instructing Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her, thus confronting him with the deeper intent of both the Redeemer laws. Boaz isn't a blood brother of Elimelech, and yet Ruth, who in ten years of marriage has been unable to conceive, offers herself to him in Naomi's place to raise up an heir, for Elimelech. This is also an act of Hesed, a gospel moment. And if her plan succeeds, she has set herself up to be the bringer of salvation in this story. Boaz stands amazed at the depth of her love for Naomi and this costly gift she has placed on the altar. He has every right to brush her off and send her away into the night. He holds all the cards, and she holds exactly none. But he doesn't. With absolutely nothing to gain for himself and much to lose, Boaz rises to the occasion and vows to stand in as Naomi's Leverite blood brother and Elimelech's Goel redeemer. They both know it's a long shot. They both know it will likely never work, but it's the only shot. And they both know, both this blue-blooded, button-down Israelite and this gutsy foreign girl from Moab, they both know that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, specializes in long shots. So they both lay their lives on the line to make it work. When the sun rises, Ruth heads home to report to Naomi, and Boaz, ever true to his word, heads for the city gates, but not before he hangs a new name on Ruth. Do you remember what that was? Anybody? She says, I mean, she, she is a barren, impoverished foreign widow, and yet Boaz says she is Hail. Remember? Hail. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. People around here know me as Hael, he says, but you are every bit the woman of valor, of standing, of nobility, and everyone around here knows that. He acknowledges, you are my match. What a wonderful statement. So far in the story, there have been two people who have been described using that, that honor term, Hael. First Boaz, now Ruth. Before chapter 4 finishes, there will be one more. Who will it be? But Ruth has raised the stakes to a legal level by appealing to Boaz as a goel. And because of that, there's suddenly a wrench in the gears. Boaz reveals for the first time there's another man who's closer in line to redeem Elimelech's property than he is. And being the man of integrity that he is, Boaz must stand aside for that other man. When chapter 3 finishes, 
Boaz has actually assumed the role of uh, in insurance underwriter for Ruth, but he'll function more like a dream team prosecuting attorney to keep a dead man's family line from disappearing. He is his brother's keeper, after all, even a brother long dead. And before the day is out, Boaz will display the same love and sacrifice that will live again many generations later down the road in his descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. So let's pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gates and sat there. In ancient times, the town gate was the heart of the community. This was where the seat of government was, the site where men transacted important business decisions, the court of law, the pulpit for prophetic messages, and the hub of gossip for the entire town. Boaz heads for the gate because he plans to assemble a quorum of city elders to deliberate and rule on legal matters pertaining to the Elimelech family. At the city gates, legal dealings and judicial proceedings all take place in full view of the public and curious onlookers. Here in Bethlehem, along with all the other people, we will discover not what Boaz is getting, but the enormity of what he is giving up. Almost immediately, he spots Elimelech's nearest relative coming through the gates. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Most translations call the near relative friend. I like the translation Joseph read this morning. It didn't do that. It said, come over here. I think it was so-and-so or, or something like that. Uh, but that's the better translation. Um, the more literal translation is, come over here and sit down, so-and-so. Now, in Bethlehem, it's not, a, it's not a large place. Surely Boaz knows the name of this man who's the near redeemer. But the narrator intentionally wants him to remain nameless in the story, and we'll find out why in just a moment. Some scholars have even given him the nickname Mr. No Name, so that's what we'll call him. Before you know it, Boaz has collected ten Bethlehem elders, and an ad hoc meeting of an ancient court is gaveled into session. This jury of ten men will decide Ruth's and Naomi's fate. And by the way, we will hear Ruth's voice no more in the story. From here on out, it's Boaz who commands the plot line. But if you're expecting Boaz to get right down to the subject of marriage you'll be disappointed. Instead, what he wants to talk about is real estate, because after all, that's what Ruth has asked him to do, to stand in, to be the goel, the one who will redeem the property. Verse 3, then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to redeem it but you, and I am next in line. 
Now, scholars are not in agreement on what had become of Elimelech's land. Some think he sold it when the famine hit and he moved away to Moab. In that case, it would be the right of the Goel to purchase it back from the buyer, and then it would become the property of the Goel, still within the clan of Elimelech. Or the land might just be laying fallow, overgrown, and unproductive. Either way, the Goel has the right to redeem it and, uh, so that it stays within Elimelech's clan. And whoever redeems it will probably be doubling his own net worth. It's really a sweet deal long term. But what's surprising is that Boaz describes this piece of property as Naomi's land. Naomi is selling this plot of ground, he announces. Oh, wait a minute. When did widows start inheriting their dead husband's property in Israel? Now, it's true that Mosaic law made an exception so that daughters could inherit land in families where there were no sons. You might remember the story of Zelophehad's daughters. But nowhere in the Torah are widows given rights of inheritance. Nowhere. The only way a widow could hang on to her dead husband's property and protect it from seizure by her husband's relatives was if she had an heir or could produce one. On both counts, Naomi is out of luck. Legally speaking, she has no standing at all to be selling any land, but Boaz has just invested her with such a right. What he is suggesting here is highly irregular. He seems to be breaking rules right from the start, granting Naomi rights to Elimelech's land. But there's something even more surprising. Nobody challenges him. Okay? Not one of the elders, not one of the witnesses sitting there says, hey, wait a minute here. Naomi isn't selling anything here, Boaz. You are way out of line on this. A woman can't do that. Why is there no challenge? Because Boaz is Ha'il, remember? He is held in high honor. He is a man of influence. And this man of valor has decided that he will leverage his influence on behalf of the marginalized widow, Naomi. Because of who he is, he can press forward with Ruth's initiatives, with Ruth's plan, something she could never do, never get away with. But he can because he has clout. Nobody opposes him. But wait, this is only the beginning. Mr. No Name is impacted by this sudden development. Why? Because he's the rightful heir to Elimelech's land. And he, will, he stands to inherit it just by default. All he has to do is wait for Naomi to die. And that land becomes his without having to spend a penny. But now, Boaz threatens all that by speeding up the timetable. If he really wants this land, he'll have to act now. Because if he doesn't, Boaz will. How can Boaz do this? It's because maybe he's a man of honor, a man of influence. Nobody's raising an objection. Instead, all eyes are now on Mr. No Name. And inside of No Name's head, the wheels are turning. 
Sure, he's going to have to shell out some cash now that he could have avoided by waiting, but he stands to gain a whole lot more. He's probably doubling the size of his own estate. By investing resources now to get the land up and working, it'll be turning a nice profit by the time Naomi dies and his family finally takes possession. He'll get his investment back in spades. For him, it's a win-win. I will redeem it, he says. He pulls out his pen and he prepares to sign on the dotted line. Now, up to this point, Boaz hasn't mentioned Ruth at all, and no one expects him to. She might as well just be invisible. Things are about to change. In a brilliant move that nobody sees coming, he brings Ruth in as part of the bargain and the linchpin of the whole deal. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, he says, wait a minute, now it's not only Naomi's land, it's Ruth's land. How can that be? Boaz is really on his game here, and he knows exactly what he's doing. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain, of the, maintain the name of the dead with his property. Wait another minute. You acquire who? The dead man's widow. Which dead man? It's not Elimelech he's talking about now because Elimelech's widow is Naomi and she can't produce an heir to maintain the name of the dead. Well, then who is it? It's Malon. It's Malon. It's Ruth's dead husband. And wait even another minute. Mr. No Name is under no legal obligation whatsoever to marry Ruth if he buys the property. The Leverate law applied only to a dead blood brother, and he's not a blood brother. You can almost see him looking around at the elders, sitting there at the city gate, the expression on his face pleading for help. Marrying Ruth is well beyond the scope of the law here, well beyond his legal call of duty. Somebody help me. But nobody's saying anything. Why not? Maybe it's not only because Boaz is Ha'il. Maybe it's because they suddenly realize their own culpability in not coming to the aid of this dying family sooner. It's been three months by this point, and nobody has stepped forward to say, Brothers, this is a shame. We need to be doing the right thing here. Maybe the light is going on for them, too. Maybe they are having an awakening moment and they catch a glimpse of what Boaz is about to do. What's Boaz about to do? Boaz is about to execute Ruth's rescue plan. And guess what? It's not about Ruth. It's not about Malon. It's all about Naomi. Now, most of us, when we read the book of Ruth, we assume the added condition of marriage to Ruth for whoever buys the land is expected. We think, well, this is no surprise. We expected this. We think everybody in the story expected to see it coming. They did not. This is a total bolt out of the blue. How do we know that? Because of how no name responds. He had no blooming clue Ruth was going to be included in this, that he would be forced to take her on as if she were some sort of booby prize. It changes the whole calculus of the thing. 
I can't do it, he says. Why not? Because I might endanger my own estate. I might endanger it, he says. What does he mean by that? He means that because Ruth is suddenly a part of, a, part of the deal, which she shouldn't be, and he wants to argue that, but he can't. But now that Ruth is part of the deal, the whole thing is a high-stakes gamble. That's what he means. For a significant investment now, he can double the size of his estate, but suddenly he's being told he has to take Ruth in the bargain. Now, the odds are he can take her and everything will be fine. She will never get pregnant. She's been married and childless for 10 long years. Odds are she will never conceive. So the odds are he can invest some money now, double his holdings, Ruth will remain barren, and everything he invests will go back into his own pocket. Then when he dies, his sons will inherit twice as much. But what if she does conceive? What then? What if by some long-shot, slim, outside chance she does have a child and that child does turn out to be a son? What then? Well, that child will be a Limelech's son on the town's records, and so that child will inherit Elimelech's property. And everything no name invests, purchase price, money to improve it, to get it working again, all that will be lost. It will go to Naomi's heir. Ruth's child. His own estate will shrink and his boys will get less. I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate, he says. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Mr. No Name's decision to relinquish his rights exposes the enormity of the sacrifice Boaz is willing to make. In this scene, Mr. No-Name serves the same purpose for Boaz that Orpah served for Ruth back in chapter 1. She made the sensible choice to return to Moab, and nobody faults her because she's returning to her own people. We can understand that. No-Name makes the sensible choice too. Whoever redeems Naomi's land will have to siphon off resources from his own estate to purchase or to rehabilitate Elimelech's fields. If Ruth gives birth, the, kingdom, the kinsman redeemer who fathers her child may face financial ruin. So he backs out. In fact, it says it three times in chapter 4. He backed out. He, he cannot do it. It's the sensible choice. But it's not the Hesed choice. This man, the nearest of kin, the one who should do the honorable thing and step up to the plate, will not do Hesed. And the rich irony here is simply this. The man who seeks to preserve his own inheritance at the price of failing to rescue a dying family loses his own name in the process. Nobody will ever know who that man was. But the name of Boaz will be passed down in honor for centuries. We all know Boaz. No one remembers the real name of Mr. No Name who passes over to Boaz the right to redeem Elimelech's fields. 
A thousand years later, Jesus will describe this dilemma using these words. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. To document the transfer, the nearer kinsman follows an ancient custom by removing his sandal and handing it over to Boaz. And it's right here at this point where so many readers of this story miss the gospel moment. They are just happy that no name is finally out of the way and smitten Boaz will finally get the girl. What they fail to account for is this. The staggering price tag to marry Ruth will be the same for Boaz as it was for No Name. No Name backed out because he feared it might ruin him, and he was right. So he looked out for himself. But the cost is the same for Boaz. He will deplete his own estate. He will draw down his own resources. He will leave much less to his own children to rescue Naomi. But Boaz doesn't see it as a gamble. He's not banking on odds that Ruth will never conceive. He believes she will. He believes Yahweh will come through. Yet he moves forward with fearless determination to the marriage altar. He displays the same costly, radical, risk-it-all brand of self-sacrifice that Ruth has displayed. This is the gospel. This is what it means to live in the kingdom. This is what it means to lose one's life for Jesus and thereby to find it. Boaz is doing hesed, and in this, he is Ruth's match. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today, you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess. <laughs> she, she's still the Moabitess. I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife. Why? Why would Boaz bend all these rules just so he might have Ruth? Is it because she's pretty? Is it because he's smitten? In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from his family or the town records, he will spend himself for the sake of his brother. A rescue operation has been underway in Bethlehem but it's not to rescue Ruth, as we so often suppose. Elimelech is the one in trouble. He's the one in need of a kinsman redeemer. And you know, we don't know exactly what went wrong. Maybe he was just down on his luck and the famine pushed him over the edge. Maybe he moved to Moab to save his family, but the evacuation plan backfired. Maybe he was the black sheep of the family, the renegade who just took off to Moab to save his own skin instead of sticking it out there in Bethlehem with everybody else. Who knows? What we do know is that hope ran out for Elimelech's legacy 
when Naomi buried her two sons and her monthly cycle stopped. In the eyes of the community, Elimelech is a lost cause, but Ruth is not ready to concede defeat. In an act of raw courage, she persuades Boaz to join forces with her to save the Elimelech line from annihilation and Naomi from permanent poverty. So Ruth and Boaz mobilize a rescue. When they launched their plan, they probably had no idea they were reconnecting with God's original creation ideal. They had no idea that what they were doing would have global implications. They just did it because they were kingdom people, followers of God who knew he was real, who had caught a glimpse of the goodness of his way of living. And I want to finish this morning by quoting a few paragraphs from, from James's book, The Gospel of Ruth. Some of this has been printed in the bulletin for you, and you can take it home. She writes, In Bethlehem, God's image bearers, Ruth and Boaz, were ruling and subduing the small portion of earth God entrusted to their stewardship. But even bigger things were happening, for they were rescuing the royal line of Messiah, the miracle child they both risk everything to conceive becomes grandfather to King David, the forefather of King Jesus. And through their efforts, God is reactivating Naomi to assume a major role in the redemptive purposes of the world. We'll look at that next week. God calls his image bearers to join him in saving the world. That's you and me. This isn't the language of comic books or cartoon heroes, but the central message of the Bible. And in the book of Ruth, three of God's image bearers joined this battle, led by an azer, to be sure. But this is not a woman's movement. This is the blessed alliance, one of the strongest examples we see in the entire Old Testament of God's image bearers, male and female, sacrificially serving together. Each of them has a major contribution to make and the cause will suffer severely and the other two will be seriously hampered in their own calls to obedience if one of them backs away. Ruth's story could have turned out differently. She was disadvantaged and defenseless against the superior power of men. And there were men in Bethlehem who would not have hesitated to take advantage of her vulnerability for their own gain. When she happens into the field of Boaz, Ruth's life begins to change for the better. Not because she has finally got a man in her sights and is longing to be near him so he can feel, fill the void she feels inside, but because he becomes her advocate, her staunch ally for the mission God has given her. Instead of stifling Ruth by insisting things stay the same way, and, and maintaining his superior rank and leadership over her, Boaz becomes the wind beneath her wings. He doesn't simply permit what she proposes. He embraces God's call on her life, and he promotes her efforts at increasingly greater costs to himself. And so together, they are caught up in a purpose bigger than both of them, but that's what frees them to do what must be done, even if it means 
breaking the rules in the eyes of the culture. They are pursuing the spirit of God's law, and Yahweh's smile rests upon this blessed alliance. This is the power of the gospel at work. And it's such a good story, isn't it? It is. But wait, there's still more. There's still another Hail to reveal and a surprise or two yet to uncover in what the townspeople have to say next week. Let's sing together as we finish a song about living in Hail, all right? <laughs> 